Thank you for listening to the North Place Podcast. We hope that after listening to this message, you will feel inspired, uplifted, and closer to Christ. To watch the video of this message, visit our website, northplacechurch.com slash watch. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to receive every episode on your phone as soon as we publish them. I want to welcome you to week number three of The Prodigal God, and uh, we've called this The Prodigal God, A Reckless Invitation. And I get the privilege to share the word with you on this week number three. Pastor Brian has taken a couple of days uh, with his family. They're on vacation, well-deserved time. He'll be here next week. But I get the opportunity, and I'm excited. I'm excited because the more I dove into this content, the more, the more I was able to see God's love and Jesus' love in the depth of the gospel. So what we've been doing, if you, are, you have not been with us in this journey, I want to encourage you, download the podcast because you got two weeks of content, solid content. Download the podcast or you could go to directly on our website and you could get the messages there and just make sure you're tracking with us. But what we've done, just to give you a general overview, we have taken Luke 15 and we have unpacked the first couple of stories that are there. Luke 15 basically starts with a murmuring. Jesus is having a meal with a group of people that the religious do not approve of. They live in a society where the people that you are hanging out with determine and establish your reputation. So the religious crowd didn't like who he was hanging out with. They disapproved of his table manners. They are not actually encouraged by who he's talking to. And they start murmuring. In other words, they start gossiping about Jesus. And instead of Jesus responding directly to them, what he does is he tells three stories. And he tells, first he tells a story about a lost sheep. And then he tells a story about a lost coin. And this was not just any coin or not just any sheep. This was a sheep that by nature could not find its way home. This was a coin that by design, it's an inanimate object, so it could not find its place. So this, this Pastor Brian shared with us last week, this coin was a valuable coin. This coin was having like having 10 diamonds on your ring and losing one of those diamonds and going crazy to find that diamond. So that was that coin. And then he tells a third story, which is probably the most well-known story. And we know that story as the prodigal son. And that's where we're going to park ourselves today, and, and I'm going to basically kind of work on the introduction, and in, over the next two weeks, we're going to continue to uh, unpack the story, unfold the story, and see some of the key principles that, that Jesus wanted to communicate to his audience as he tells the story. What I like to call this is, it's a microcosm of the gospel. Almost a decade ago, and uh, we, we, we went through this content, it, and it really revolutionized our leadership it revolutionized our decision-making, and it revolutionized our church. So I hope that as we walk through this, you get this profound revelation or understanding of the love of God for us and for you. That just doesn't leave us in the same place, but it, it, it forces us to react and to respond. And so the story begins with, with, with these two sons, um, and one of them really has an incredible request And this is what it says. To illustrate further, uh, chapter 15, verse 11. To illustrate further, which tells you this story happens within a context, and he's trying to kind of amplify the point that he's trying to make with the illustration 
of the two previous stories. So he says, to illustrate the point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide the wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son just packed all of his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all of his money in wild living. Depending on the English translation that you read, it basically says that he squandered his money in sensual pleasures and party. So that's kind of the beginning of the story. You know the story. He eventually realizes, recognizes that he was wrong, that what he was doing was he was losing all of what he had, not just the money. He returns home. The father receives him, throw a party for him, and his older brother that had been obedient had stayed at home, refuses to enter the party, and that's kind of the over 30,000-foot view. But Uh, I'm just going to focus on these first verses, and we're going to hit three points today. We're going to look at the request, the meaning of that request. What did it mean? We're going to look at the response of the request, the response of the Father to that request. And thirdly, what does that mean to me 2,000 years later? What do I have to do with that and why we're even discussing that? So those are the three things that we're going to unpack over the next few minutes that we have left. The first point, the meaning of the request, and that's verses 11 and 12. The story Like I told you, it begins with the son coming to the father and saying, I want my share of the estate and I want it now. So the interesting thing is that that the request itself, it's astonishing. In a Middle Eastern culture, asking for an inheritance before the person had passed away was actually desiring the death of the father. Kenneth Bailey, and I had a lot of fun getting ready for this message, reading his book, because it's called The Lost Cultural Keys of Luke 15. And I want to encourage you, if you get a chance, read it. But I pulled out this quote, and it says, In the Middle Eastern culture, culture, to ask for the inheritance while the father is alive is to wish him dead. So the petition itself, when we read it at a glance, it's okay, he asked for the inheritance, the father gave it to him, and we move on. But I want us to really look at what was he asking for. He was really wishing the death of the father, but because it did not come soon enough, he said, well, I guess I'll have to settle. Give it to me now. From a theological perspective, what Jesus was saying is, humanity rebelled against God, and they basically want me dead. That's what he was saying. So the request would have been this disgrace to the dignity of the family, would have been a disgrace to the name of the family, would have been a blow to the economic standing of this family. We got to remember the rural, the context, the, the, the wealth of a rural family was not in a bank account, was not in actions or, or stocks, I'm sorry, was not in stocks, was not in a bank account, was not in a savings account, was not in a checking account. The wealth of a rural family was in land, a conglomerate of homes, and animals, land, homes, and animals. So when he comes and he requests this, he's basically hitting the father and saying, you know what? I want it. I want it now. I don't care at what expense. And for the family to find itself without the third of everything would mean a huge loss, economic loss for this family. The elder son would have gotten two thirds because they would have gotten a double portion. And the younger son would have gotten a third of what the estate was, and that's what he asked. But this is another point here, which is interesting. A few days later, 
This younger son, and I want you to capture that idea, a few days later, so not a lot of time had passed, he passed, he was in a hurry. He basically packed his stuff, packed his belongings, and moved to a distant land and had a party with what he had received. The parable makes it clear that it was just a few days later, which means he liquidated all of the assets of the family. What had taken probably generations to accumulate, he was willing to get rid of. In, in, in this culture, the most insignificant or smaller transaction would have taken days to negotiate. But he was willing to squander it all and said, give me whatever you want, basically. I'll take the less, less money, but I want the money now. And that's what he was saying. There was no trust in the father. There was, basically, he was deciding that he wanted to shape his own destiny. He feels that he could no longer trust the father to direct his life. He wants control and power over his life at any expense. I want power, I want control, and I want it now. He uses a long phrase. In, in Semitic languages, basically, he could have asked for what he was asking for the inheritance from the research I did with two words. But instead, he goes into this circumlocution that it has a bunch of words, and he's kind of trying to dance around it. And he uses between six to eight words, and he avoids the word inheritance. Instead, the word that's explained in, or in the Greek, he could have used the word kleidonomia which means inheritance. But instead, he uses the word usia, which means wealth or property, because he doesn't want to say the word, I want the inheritance. What he was trying to avoid by this was, I don't want the responsibility. When a son received the inheritance of the family, he actually was to represent the family. He was to administer the property. He was committed to increasing the wealth of the family clan. He was committed to build the house of the father. So instead, he demands the privileges. I want my Usia. I want your wealth. I want your property but I don't want the responsibility of managing it because I'm out of here. So he demands privileges without responsibilities. He did not want to ask for the inheritance and because of the responsibility that it entailed. So what does he do? He basically cuts all ties in the process. He breaks the relationship with the father. With this request, basically, he does not only break the relationship of the father, but he detaches himself from his true inheritance. In this context, the safety of a man is his family. So in other words, your family is your health insurance. Your family is your pension fund. Your family is your widow's pension. Your family is your physical and your emotional well-being is all tied to your roots, to your land, to your family clan, and to your identity. And what he is saying is, I don't want any of it. I want out. Are you still with me? I'm tracking because his audience understood. I hope you're tracking with me. Because his audience understood clearly what this request meant. So the request was really tearing the family apart. The request was, was, was just breaking this relational strong bond among the family. And it was an economic act of violence against the family integrity. The question is, why would the younger son do such things? Why would the, the younger the son would, would actually think of doing this and removing himself completely from everything that was familiar to him 
and from the assurance of being in the clan and in the house of his father. Augustine, in the 3rd, 4th century, gives us, gives us a response of why we do the things we do. And I had some fun also reading the Confessions of Augustine. But you could thank me later because I had to get a lot of translations. But I did pull this. A man has murdered another man. What was his motive? Either he desired his wife or his property or else he would steal to support himself. Or else he was afraid of losing something to him. Or else, having been injured, he was burning to be revenged. Augustine goes on to say that a murderer commits murder because he loves something too much. He goes on to say, he loves romance or wealth or his reputation or something else too much, inordinately, more than God. And that is why he murders. Our hearts are distorted by disordered loves. When we love and when we look at things, things to give us the joy and the satisfaction and the meaning that only God could give us. And I want you to think about the conversation God had with Abraham. And, and just God goes in Genesis chapter 22, you can read the story, but basically God tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. And when you look at that, you're thinking, why in the world would you want him to sacrifice after waiting so long? We know Isaac is the son of the promise. He's, 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 he's tied to Abraham's destiny. In order for Abraham to fulfill his destiny, his son and his offspring will have to be part of the story. But when we read it, we think, whoa, why are you doing that? In reality, God did not want Abraham, did not want Isaac. He wanted Abraham's heart. Because, you see, Isaac was sitting in the throne of Abraham's heart. And Abraham was more in love with his son than with God. He was more in love with creation than the creator. And God said, this is my test. I want you to dethrone what you love so much. And I want to sit at the throne of your heart again, Abraham. And the same thing was with the son. When you look at the story, that younger son may have lived a life that was maybe an obedient life. He may have obeyed his father in everything he did, but he really did not love the father. He loved the things of the father. Ultimately, he loved the father's things more than he loved his dad. His heart was set on wealth. His heart was set on freedom. His heart was set on power. His heart was set on control. His heart was set on the status that wealth would bring. His father, it just meant he was just, just the means to an end. <laughs> and I think what we got to ask ourselves is, why do I have a relationship with Jesus? Do I have a relationship with Jesus because I needed a genie and a lamp to get me the things that I need and I want? And if he doesn't do it my way, I'm out of here. Or... Have I fallen in love with God? Am I fall, have I fallen in love with God because it's my security to my eternity just in case there is a hell? <laughs> I want to be safe? Or are we really in love with God? Are we loving? I mean, what we're asking here is, are we, love, are we in love with God 
Or are we in love with the things that God could possibly give me or what he's, uh, he's already given me? The great irony about this, and we'll study a little bit this later in the next few weeks, is that the two sons look completely different on the outside. Their behaviors look different, but where they're at is exactly the same place. One runs off and lives this dissolute life, this decadent life. The other one stays at home, obeys all the rules, does everything he needs to do, does everything right. Yet at the end is the older son. I want you to follow this. It is the older son that has stayed at home and followed all the rules, the one that refuses to enter into the party that refuses to sit at the table because the father had two seats at that table, one for the older son that had stayed at home and one for the younger son that really squandered his life. So the older son actually brings shame to the family again and tears the family apart at the end of the story because he says, I've done everything right. I've earned the right. And you've never given me squat. Basically, you've never given me not even a little, a little goat. But this guy shows up who squander, and we had to pay for the party. And now you want me to sit at the same table with him? I've done everything right. So now the integrity of the family, the integrity of the father, it's being under attack again by someone that has followed all the rules. This is the deal. While the request of the son would have been outsta- I mean, just astonishing to the audience. The response of the father just left them with their mouths completely open. You got to remember this was a patriarchal society. In a patriarchal society, respect and deference toward those that were older than you or above you in authority was of utmost importance. But yet, that kind of disrespect by the son would have sent a patriarch or a father just completely would have been outraged and the wrath that would have come out of him would have impacted that son greatly and he would have been kicked out emotionally, physically, and spiritually. Yet, what we see instead and what we read in the next sentence is simply, so he divided his property between them. So he divided his property between them. We read earlier that basically the wealth of a family was in property, in homes, and in animals. So their family land, the place where they lived, it was a lot of times referred to as you are the son of. And where you lived related to who you were and to the status. The family was, identity was as part of the land as anything else. And this is reflected in the unusual word that is chosen to express the response of the father. In the English language, basically it says, so he divided his property. And these are the more modern languages, more modern translations, I'm sorry, into the English language. But if you read the older translations, like the old King James, it will basically say, so he divided his substance between them. And the word that is used in the Greek to refer to property is the word bios. And that's where we get the word bio, which means life. And I believe that intentionally it was used that way because when his response was, the father divided his life between them. 
The fact that he lost his land, he lost his dignity, he lost status, he lost the fact that he, he was not going to be able to have his sons, the physical presence of his son in the house. The father was being asked to tear apart his very life, the fiber of his very life, and he does. The older son and anyone else in the community, any of the listeners, would have thought that the father was being foolish to give into the younger son's request. But the father, it's still the father. He doesn't break the relationship with his son. His younger son breaks his relationship with him. But the father grabs on to that last string that he had in hopes that one day the relationship could be restored. If the father would have responded in anger and in wrath, the possibility of restoration and reconciliation would have probably been practically impossible because of the shame of the son to, in, in a desire to return. Tim Keller says, The suffering of the father gives rise to the possible return of the son. By bearing the agony and pain of the son's sin himself, instead of taking revenge, instead of paying the son back by inflicting pain on him, the father kept the door open in the relationship. The father was willing to suffer for the sin of the child so that someday reconciliation would be possible. All of this conversation, I hope, makes it clear about what Jesus was trying to communicate to his audience and what I'm hoping I'm trying to convey with my limited vocabulary. Jesus was not taking the model of an Eastern, Middle Eastern patriarch. He said, I'm going to go against the grain of culture, and yet I'm going to create this image that almost seems impossible, seems impossible in your mind, and I'm going to give you the image, not of a Middle Eastern patriarch, but I'm going to give you the image of the Heavenly Father, of a God that loves unconditionally. He frees himself from the bonds of culture to present this incomparable image that should evoke in us the image of God as our Heavenly Father. I hope that, that by understanding the depth of the love of God for His revealed love through His Son Jesus, and it is communicated through this story, and yet central to the message of Jesus Christ. I hope you're seeing that connection. The third thing, and the last thing I want to cover with you, what difference does it make for me? What do I have to do with this story? And, and just whether you identify more with the younger brother that have squandered a lot of years and resources and, and made choices that you just, they were based on control and they were based on power regardless of the, what those consequences were. Or whether you identify yourself more with that elder brother that really has always obeyed all the rules and have always followed the system but yet have found something else to capture your heart, I want to share this illustration. Suppose that there is a wife whose husband is spending a lot of time with this other woman. And he's traveling with her and he's always talking about her. And when he talks about her, he smiles. And they're always talking about his problems and he's sharing his problems with her. And she's sharing his problems with him. And, and he's planning more trips. And one day the spouse, the wife, confronts him. And he doesn't understand the problem. He's like, what's up with you? 
I'm married to you, am I? I mean, we have a piece of paper and a certificate that proves it. I pay the mortgage. I bring the groceries. If somebody asks me, I'll even tell them that you're my wife. I don't deny it publicly. I mean, what, what else? I do my duties. What's your problem? And the wife, rightfully so, responds and says, someone else has stolen your heart and your imagination. Someone else has captured your heart. Someone else is sitting in the throne of your heart. But now let's bring this to the Christian context. Let's say a person that calls himself or herself a Christian. Basically says that they're in relationship with God. But they feel that it's more of a drudgery and an obligation than a passion. And one day the Holy Spirit brings this conviction and um, the person says, what's the problem? I've come to church at least twice a month. You know, I travel a lot for business. I, I mean, you should be happy I come twice a month. I should only be coming once. I give in that little gray thing that they pass around every time I get a chance. So I'm giving my offering. I'm coming to church. I mean, I sit around. Even if they ask me at work, I'll tell them I'm a Christian. I'm not that embarrassed. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than where I was before. Why don't you just, Holy Spirit, leave me alone? But God knows that Christ follower or Christian is more of a label than it is an issue of the heart. He's following other things. And something else has captured this person's heart and imagination. Many of us, including myself, could identify with the older brother. I'm a rule follower. And that's why I make a good executive pastor, because I make sure systems and processes are in place. But our real heart sometimes, and passion, it's really after something else, because it gets distracted. Whether that for you is career, ministry, your children, wealth, or even peer acceptance. If anything else has a controlling position in your heart... If anything is more important that our hap- to our happiness than God, then that thing is a God to us, is what Augustine calls a disordered love. And what's the problem with that? That disordered loves, the idols of our heart, will lead us always to disappointments. Always to disappointment. The second thing that I want to highlight God has done for us what the father in the story did for that son. And I'm pretty sure you captured that as we talked. God paid for our sin. The same way the father of the story paid for the sin of the son, God paid for our sin. God could have come with wrath, but instead, he didn't come with a sword in his hands. He came with nails in his hands. He didn't come to bring judgment, but he came to carry our judgment. He came to bear our judgment. Jesus went to the cross in weakness. And there, voluntarily, he had his life literally torn apart. Why? So that that physically and practically we could have forgiveness for our shame, for our guilt, and for our sins. And spiritually, spiritually... We could absolutely enjoy the beauty of seeing Jesus did 
what he did for us so that once again he could capture our hearts. There is nothing more beautiful in our reality and in all of reality than the picture of a perfectly happy being leaving all the bliss of heaven and sacrificing everything for the sake of rebellious, undeserving, ungrateful people. The more you look at Jesus doing that, the more you will love him above anyone or anything else. And that's, that's, that's the point I want to I draw your attention to. The more I see Jesus doing what he did for me, the more my love for him can just, will just come from a heart of gratitude. The more I will stop performing in my own religion and be lost in my own religion. And the more I will recognize that salvation and fullness and wholeness can only come from him and not be either the younger son or the elder son. What has taken the place of God in your heart? Who or what is sitting at the throne of your heart? It could be worry. It could be wealth. It could be power. It could be control. It could be sensual pleasures. It could be career. It could be ministry. It could be religiosity. Whatever that is, God is calling us all back to the table and saying, whether you've squandered your life, I love you so much. There's nothing you need to do but open your arms and receive Jesus in your heart. And he's saying to all of those that have spent our lives following the rules, you've lost your love and your passion for me. And you're so distracted that I want to bring you back and remind you that my love for you never ends. Following your rules is great, but it will not bring salvation. It will not bring joy. It will bring drudgery. That's the message Jesus was trying to communicate to his audience. I believe that's the message Jesus is trying to communicate to us today. And that's what 11, 12, and 13 means. Who sits on the throne of your heart? And at what expense are you willing to dethrone him? At what expense? I want you to bow your heads just for a second. And I want us to do this internal audit. Because this is so personal that I don't think anybody else, it's anybody else's business. But yours and God. And I want to talk to, to those that, that are more connected or feel more connected to, to the younger brother type. And you feel, you know what? <laughs> I live most of my life and I make most of my decisions in the past based on power and control. And I, I really didn't think through a lot of the consequences, but in many ways it has uprooted me from the inheritance, the true inheritance of what God wants for me, for my life, for my family, for my destiny, for my business, for my work life, for my retirement life, for, for every aspect of my life. And I really want to bring him in. And it could be that you've never made a decision to do that in or it could be that you made that decision a long time ago and like that prodigal son, you're just away and, and, and you're, you're, you're trying to find your place. You're trying to find your way back. And he is saying, I have a seat for you at the table. And I just want to invite you. I just want to know if you are here, if, if this resonated, this part of the message today resonated with you, I'm just going to ask you, just raise your hand right there where you are and let me know, I see a hand right there just went up right straight when I asked. And I see several hands on the right. You could put them down. Thank you. Thank you. I see those hands there. 
I see some hands in the back here. I see a hand in the back. Thank you. Basically, by raising that hand, thank you. You're just, you're just saying, you know what? I've done it my way. I want to come home. And because there's such a love of the Father going after me, and there's a pursuit, in the next few verses, the story says that he ran to the Son when he saw the Son coming at a distance. Because there's a passionate pursuit for you, regardless of how you feel about your mistakes and your life and what you've done. There's this passionate pursuit. And that love is unconditional. Right there where you are, I I just want to ask everybody to join me in this prayer. And if you can, just pray. Pray this out loud with me. Father, I have sinned. Forgive me. Today, I open my heart and I welcome you to my life. Take control and I give you the power and the throne of my heart for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. As solemn as we are right now, there's a huge party in heaven going on. And I didn't make that up because he said, Jesus says that at, at the end of each of these three stories. He says, whenever the coin was found, there was a party. Whenever the sheep was found, there was a party. When the son came home, and pastor will impact this next week, the father just ran. And imagine a patriarch running. That was so undignified in that culture. But he ran. Why? Because he's passionate about you. And he's passionate. When you say, I've given you my heart, I let you steal my heart, he just comes in and seals the deal. Because what he did for us is pave the way so that we could walk in and our dignity be restored and her inheritance be restored and have a seat at the table regardless of my past. And then secondly, I want to talk to those of you that connect more to the elder brother. You've been following the rules. And you've been following the rules. And you've been following the rules. But the joy is no longer there. Because something else is sitting on that throne. And today is the day for us to come back to that. And say, Lord, I want your wholeness again. I want to be able to not just envision Jesus doing what he did for me daily, but I want to envision it just every second of my life. I want to be so grateful that re- whether it's, it's a painful circumstance, I'm able to live through it. And it is a joyful circumstance. I'm not going to attach to it and make it an idol of my heart. I'm going to let you sit in the throne of my heart, on the throne of my heart and say, Jesus, you're my everything every day of my life. And I've lost that. He wants you to sit at the table again. And he wants to give you the fullness of his peace, of his shalom, of his wholeness, and bring that again. And that's only possible through Jesus Christ. Not through following the rules, not through following religion, but through following him. Father, I come before you today confessing my own sin of trying to earn my salvation by following the rules and by thinking that by my performance I could reach you. But, but I was in such a low place and we are in such a low place that you had to come down to us and you had to reach out to where we were 
to bring that wholeness and take away the brokenness. And today, Lord, as we ask for forgiveness, we invite you to sit on the throne, not of the rules, not of the circumstance, not of what's temporary, fulfilling me and bringing satisfaction, but what's eternal, and that is you. And what made it possible was your sacrifice and your resurrection. Bless us all, Jesus, and save us from ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I want to invite our prayer partners just to come. And uh, as you stand to your feet, I want to invite you that if there is a prayer need in your life, if there is a need in your life, I want you to come to the front. And the people that are coming, they, they spend days and they, walk, they pray and walk the halls throughout the week. And their, their, their desire is to, to connect their faith with your faith. And uh, I just want to encourage you that if you want to receive prayer uh, before every, the stampede goes that direction, you make your way this direction and say, you know what, there is a need in my life or a need in someone else's life. Uh, it may be somebody that is sick in your family or at work or, or in, your, in your neighborhood and you just want to make sure that you ask for prayer for that person. Or if you made that decision and you're one of the younger sons or elder sons, you want to say, you know what, I want somebody to pray with me today. I would love for you to come and receive, receive prayer. Amen. Don't miss it next week. We're going to continue with this. I hope this is blessing you as much as it's blessing us. Uh, But my prayer is that the Lord will bless you and keep you, that he will make his face shine upon you, that he will turn his countenance towards you and give you peace in every area and wholeness in every area of your life. God bless you. We love you. See you next week. Thank you for listening to this message from North Place Church. Feel free to share it with your friends. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at North Place and on Facebook at North Place Church. To watch the video of this message, go to northplacechurch.com slash watch.